Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. I am good, I think. I am fighting very hard against the January blues and uh, the relentless demands of my self-assessment tax spreadsheet. (laughs) And let me tell you, those are hard battles to be fighting simultaneously and to win, but I'm doing my best. Um, And today was actually a really good day because I dropped by the Canongate offices and saw the first proofs of my book in a beautiful green pile, which was an extremely surreal and kind of astonishing feeling. And um, I'm still riding a little bit high off it. So today has been a good day in spite of the rain, in spite of the gray. Um, How about you? That's so exciting. And I think there is still something so powerful about the book as an object, isn't there? Oh my God, I always feel that when my author's books come in. It's like, wow, this thing that was in your head has become a thing. Tangible. Um, Yeah, it's that's a much better word for it. (laughs) (laughs) You're the writer. (laughs) I think it's also just this thing with the, it's the beginning of the process of letting it go, isn't it? It becomes other from you and then it's out there and then it's in the hands of other people and you, you have to let go of it, which I feel the beginning of that process coming and it's very strange, but quite exciting. Yeah. I'm so excited to hold it eventually. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, I am also fighting the January blues settling into the month. I punctured my bike tire on my first day back at work, which, oh. <laughs> which is a great start. And my house is <laughs> so cold, Octavia. I can't even tell you. I've been sleeping with a, wa- a hot water bottle and like five layers of socks. You need an electric blanket, my love. I might get one, actually. Get one. <laughs> I will send you one if you don't get one by the end of the week, okay? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. That's so nice of you. But yeah, you freezing? In, in that spirit, I'm I'm choosing to lean into positive, warm, cozy things, cups of tea, electric blankets, reading, you know, nice, soothing music, all of that. And the, the, the very exciting thing I have to report is the meadow behind my house has flooded and it's amazing to just watch the way it reflects the sky in the morning. It's, it lifts my spirit every morning. But on to the show. Today, we'll be talking to the writer Catherine Scanlon about her riveting new novel, Kick the Latch. Kick the Latch is based upon a series of conversations that Catherine had with a woman named Sonia about her joyful and brutal life as a trainer for racehorses. To celebrate what Lydia Davis called Catherine's magical act of empathic ventriloquy. That's quite a sentence, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. <laughs> in the book. <laughs> On the show today, we'll be talking about literature that engages in similar ways with the lives of others. Portraits of real people abound in books, like novels that use transcribed conversations, like Sheila Hetty's How Should a Person Be, or fiction based on real historical or even living people, like Curtis Sittenfeld's Rodham. Did you read it, Octavia? Mm, we'll be cutting to that later. <laughs> <laughs> or American Wife, who that was based on Laura Bush. We'll be getting into things like the ethics of writing from another life in fiction, the art of biography, and our favorite literary portraits. So lots of juicy stuff there. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little more about Catherine Octavia? I sure can, Carrie. Catherine Scanlon is the author of the short story collection, The Dominant Animal, published in 2020, and Org 9 Fog, published in 2019. In 2021, she received an American Academy of Arts and Letters Award for Exceptional Accomplishment in Literature. She lives in Los Angeles. 
Also, a quick reminder that we are on Patreon still. Um, still if you there, want baby. to support the work that we do and get extra content and still just be loved by us very much, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash lit friction and get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to talk about. We've had some really fun topics lately, including sleep and interiors. So please plug in and enjoy. Please do. You can also find a list of all the books we recommended today on bookshop.org. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Catherine Scanlon, a discussion of how writers have depicted the lives of others in literature, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So let us paint your portrait for the next hour oh my God. of Literary Friction. She's back with the freshest cheese. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. Catherine Scanlon, welcome to Larry Friction. Thank you. So we've asked you to start with a reading from Kick the Latch. Do you mind setting it up for us, please? Sure. I'm just going to read uh, one chapter. Key to the quarter pole. When you're a greenhorn and eager to learn, someone might say, why don't you go over to Barn 6 and ask if you can borrow their saddle stretcher? So you go to Barn 6 and say, Biff Gifford wants to know if he can borrow your saddle stretcher. And the person at barn six says, I gave it to barn nine. You can get it from them. You go to barn nine, but the person there sends you to barn 12 and says, while you're at it, can you get me the key to the quarter pole? You're walking back and forth, barn to barn, but there's no such thing as a saddle stretcher or a quarter pole key. One guy knew I was afraid of mice so he'd catch them and put them in my feed sack. At four o'clock in the morning, half awake, I'd pull up the lid and put my hand into the sack, and six mice would jump onto my arm. I'd be screaming, and he'd be laughing. They stick one horse in another horse's stall to get you flustered, or they take your horse, put him on a walker, and say, where'd your horse go? Where'd your horse go? They mess with you, especially when you're new, and then pretty soon you're doing it to people too. Thank you. And I think that gives a great sense of the voice in this book, but also the length of the chapters, which I want to ask you more about. But I first wanted to start with a pretty simple question about the origin of the book, um, which is based upon a number of conversations that you had with a horse trainer named Sonia. Um, And would you mind talking to us about how you first met Sonia and why you were so interested in her, why you thought she might be the subject for a book like this? Yeah, um, I met Sonia because of my parents. Um, They're antique dealers, and she is also an antique dealer these days. And so she's someone that they had met um, doing shows. And my mom especially started talking to me about her. I would talk to her on the phone, and she would just start telling me these stories that this woman that she knew had told her, and they were amazing. And and my (laughs) she just sort of kept insisting, like, you need to meet this woman. I think you know you should write something about her. And so I ended up meeting her um, and recorded the first conversation that we had when we met. And I, but I, you know, I didn't really have an idea of 
what the book would be or if I would even, you know, be able to write a book or maybe I would like write a short story about her or something. But then it just, um, that first conversation was almost four hours long and, um, just kind of incredible. And so it, it ended up being this thing that I knew at the end of the conversation that I wanted to, to work on and to make into a book. Did you have any qualms about it, about that transformation? And I guess also like, did, did Sonia? Sonia didn't, she was really, um, sort of like surprisingly, I guess, just very open, like right from the start. Um, you know, she knew I was a writer. She knew I was interested in possibly writing about her, about her life. Um, she just was always sort of like eager to talk and, and, and happy to, you know, sort of read what I had been sending her. Like once I started working on the book and I think that, I think that at the end of that first conversation, I sort of, I more or less had the idea of the book as it is now, you know, just sort of this first person, very directly drawn, you know, from the transcripts. But I think that I, I thought about it for a while also and was sort of like, well, what if I did this or what if I did this or what if I did like more of, you know, a traditional fictional approach, which is, you know, there's lots of fiction that's written about real people. Right. And, but usually it's sort of like, um, the writer sort of sits with it and they make characters and they, uh, maybe write it in the third person or they, they sort of, uh, do a different treatment with it. And so I thought about all those and I even like made some drafts of those attempts, but, but then I just, um, you know, came back to my original idea, which, I felt like was the most direct and the most faithful to, you know, these sort of incredible stories that had been relayed to me. Yeah, it's kind of amazing as a reader. I almost, I would love to listen to it now, having read it, um, because it it's a bit like a monologue almost, you know, there's something kind of, I found slightly theatrical about it, not in terms of the language, which is very, as you said, direct and, and paired back actually, but just about the directness of the communication, I think, between the narratorial voice and the reader. I don't Mm -hmm. know what you make of that. Um, I think that, you know, writing the book, I was just sort of, I was trying to imitate as closely the feeling that I had listening to Sonia, which, you know, especially that first conversation, um, we were at a flea market we were sitting outside. It was October. It was a cold day, but it was like a really sunny day. And I, you know, sat down and started recording her and she just talked. And like, by the end, (laughs) I had this horrible sunburn on exactly (laughs) one half of my face because I had been (laughs) sitting at an angle to the sun. So, (laughs) and I had to go to like a family function the next day, but um, really there was like a line right down the center of my face. And it was just because I hadn't moved, you know, the entire time I, I hadn't really said much and I hadn't moved and I just was listening to her speak. And, and so I think that I really felt that there was something important there and that, that I wanted to try, you know, to the best of my ability to sort of recreate in the book. And I'd love to get more into the technical process of that recreation. Like, 
what was the process of taking those transcripts and then transforming it into the book? Was it like a cut and paste job? Was it looking at different sentences and moving them around? How did you, how did you shape the text? Yeah, it was those and and a lot of other, it was a lot of different approaches and like in different stages as well. Um, I mean, I think even just in the beginning, you know, the act of listening again to the recording and transcribing was sort of like part of, you know, getting a sense of this material and and what I wanted to do with it. And also, you know, which things especially caught my attention and, you know, that I felt like were really important to keep in the book. Um, and then once I had the transcripts from that first conversation, I was sort of, it was this massive document and I was, um, trying to figure out how I could handle it, you know? And so I was breaking it down into sections and sort of like cutting and pasting and, and putting those into, you know, another word document and, and then sort of like whittling those and shaping those and, and kind of rewriting some things. So that was kind of like the earliest, you know, form. But then as I went on, those sections kind of got, shuffled around as far as like the material that was in each one. And I started, you know, sort of writing into it more and, you know, figuring out the titles and, and things like that. Did you show any of this to Sonia as you were doing it? Has she read the book? What was her relationship with the book like after those initial conversations? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wouldn't have, um, I definitely wouldn't have done this, uh, if I hadn't, you know, been showing her and had her approval the whole way. But I think a few, it was like maybe three or four months after our first meeting, I tried to email her some of the little chapters that I had mocked up just to kind of show her like what, you know, what I wanted to do with it. I'm not sure that she ever was able to actually open those. We had kind of a a email miscommunication, but then after we got reconnected by phone, And I started going back into the draft. Then I sent her, you know, multiple versions of the draft as I, as I worked on it. And, you know, she gave me notes. We had calls about what was happening in those and yeah. So she, yeah, she's been a part of it the whole way. The thing I found also so gripping about is the world of horse racing is not a world I know. I've been to a couple of horse races in my life, but you know, that's it. And it's not a world that I thought would have gripped me in the way that it now does. Mm -hmm. And I found like, yeah, the the details that you include and that Sonia has, you know, the experiences that she's had in that world is so fascinating, you know, in an unusual way, because it's so much to do with that blurred boundary between the animal world and the human world, right? And like we categorize animals and humans totally differently. But actually, whenever you listen to somebody who, who is passionate working with animals, they, they totally dissolve those boundaries. And I wonder, like, did you, did you find Sonia turned you on to horse racing? Was it something you had an interest in before? And is it something you will maintain an interest in now? Do you think? No, it was something I already had an interest in sort of a history with, I mean, first of all, just with horses in general. Um, my mother taught me to ride horses early, early, she was, you know, a great horsewoman. And then I got my own horse when I was seven or eight years old. And so, you know, in some ways hearing about Sonia's childhood with her horse Rowdy, 
it just was very similar, you know, in a lot of ways to mine, like just spending most of my time kind of just alone, you know, me and this horse. Um, and, and then also my father owned racehorses when I was a kid. Um, you know, I have memories of kind of standing outside the track and, and watching them, you know, also similar to, to Sonia. So yeah, that was definitely, you know, part of my interest uh, once she started talking is just this this feeling of, you know, sort of a kindred spirit as far as um, how she respects and, and interacts with animals. Yeah, but one of the things that's so interesting about the world of horse racing is how cruel it can be for the horses. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> that really came through. Like they literally bleed from their lungs when they run, which um, she says yeah. at one point, which I, I didn't know about. Of course, I know, mm-hmm. you know, if the, if you break your leg, you're often put down. And I really felt the contradiction of that cruelty with, with Sonia's love for these animals and, and kinship with the animals. And I wonder if that was a contradiction you really felt when you were talking to her and when you were writing the book as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that tension, you know, is part of my interest in writing about horse racing, because on the one hand, I have this sort of like, you know, nostalgic feeling about it, about going to the races with my dad and always feeling sort of excited by it. But then also, yeah, being, you know, very aware of uh, just how terrible it is for the animals, you know, and I think that's something I, I definitely thought, you know, listening to her, listening to her stories. And, and I think that, you know, part of the reason she's, she was like compelled to tell these stories is that, you know, I just sort of imagine that <laughs> it really was upsetting, you know, to have to see some of these things and sort of be complicit in them. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, she maybe is a little defensive of the idea of people who who don't maybe know much about horse racing or about animals sort of coming in from the outside and saying, oh, this is cruel, this is terrible. When, you know, I think that a lot of the people that work in that world, they just, they actually do really care for them and they, you know, are, are trying to look out for them the best that they can. Well, it's complicated too, right? Because Sonia also, she lives through some extremely violent experiences herself as a human, right? And there's kind of this sense of balance in the book almost that like to be a living creature, you suffer cruel experiences and you also win races, right? Like it's kind of a fascinating balance there. And I wonder, you know, whether there was something that you and Sonia had to I don't know, work together on to balance some of those more difficult experiences she'd lived through, or was she very free with that information and didn't sort of mind so much? She was free with it and didn't seem to mind so much. It, you know, it was something that, um, you know, I wasn't really acting the part of, you know, an interviewer really in our conversations. I just kind of you know, listened to what she wanted to tell me. And yeah, and those things, yeah, came out alongside lots of other (laughs) happier Mm -hmm. stories as well. Yeah. Well, the thing I found very interesting about, I was reading a few of the reviews and things of this book and a word that I found kept coming up was people saying that you have a, a real skill for kind of making the ordinary extraordinary, which I think is very true. But I also think reading this 
Sonia didn't have an ordinary life. I know, <laughs> right? I like know. she's an extraordinary person who's lived in an extraordinary way, right? Yes. It's kind of it's kind of driving me crazy a little bit how often that seems to be said. I mean, I understand it and sure, you know, but I also think, God, like, yes, she did have an extraordinary life, you know. Um, yeah, it's kind of baffling. <laughs> But she, at the same, she did have an extraordinary life, but at the same time, I think I understand it because there's something about her that's like, this could be any of us. And it's also writing about a life that maybe you wouldn't expect in fiction to be the one voice in a novel, you know, Mm -hmm. and maybe that's what people mean by ordinary life. I, I, I don't know. I think that there's something so unexpected about you elevating her in some ways. And and I mean that in the best possible way. I just, I didn't know that I wanted to read a novel about um, a horse trainer. And then I was so glad that I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think also just Sonia is um, very humble and as a person and, you know, she, when we were talking, she said to me multiple times, sort of like, you know, I, I don't really think my story is that interesting. I'm glad you think it's interesting. I think everybody, everybody has an interesting story about their lives. And, you know, and I sort of, I guess I agree with her that, you know, everybody's lives are interesting. Um, but I, you know, I guess I wonder if maybe some of that sort of like no nonsense humility that she has is, is part of, you know, that feeling, I guess, of ordinariness, maybe. I wonder if you've come up against any resistance about people thinking about genre and thinking about, you know, is this fiction? Is this nonfiction? What would you call what you do as a writer? Do you, uh, does that keep you up at night at all? Or do you not, no. do you not really care about no. genre? <laughs> no, I think it's funny. Um, and, I think it, and I think it's interesting. I think um, it's sort of funny to me to see people get in a twist about what something is, you know, and what to call it what is this genre? We need to figure it out. And I think that I, I don't know. I think that, that genre is something that is, is sort of fun to play with and like maybe make a little mischief with, I mean, ultimately it's like we have to call the book something for marketing purposes. Right. Um, in an ideal world, maybe it wouldn't really matter. It would just be, is this interesting writing or is it not? Um, but I also think that there are lots of things that genre can accomplish as far as like what the author decides to call it, you know, what sort of authority they want to take with it and, and how that affects how the book is received. Do you feel like, I mean, Sonia, Sonia's voice, I feel like is one that will stay with me for a long time. I wonder how you relate to the voices of your narrators when you finish a book do you find they hang around yeah I do and I think that I mean it happened with Ognine Fog too where just certain lines you know would kind of stay with me or sort of they sort of like pop up now and then like something will happen in my life and I'll sort of <laughs> like a line from the diary or you know of Sonia's or whatever will sort of like pop into my head sort of as <laughs> Um, a friend or something. Um, yeah, but the, I feel like the voice of this book, you know, yeah, it's sort of a strange one because I think it's, it's sort of 
part Sonia and, and part me. I also wanted to ask you about, because we had a really interesting chat with um, the artist and writer Lizzie Stewart, who wrote this graphic novel named Allison. Um, and she actually recommended Kick the Latch. I listened uh, to that oh. episode. Yes, <laughs> oh, you that, was, did. that was so nice of her. Yeah, I didn't know she was going to recommend it. So I was like, it's a nice surprise. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was lovely. And um, she was very passionate about your book. And when I read Kick the Latch after reading Allison, I I could see why, I mean, I, I really liked both those books, but I could also see why she was such a fan of Kick the Latch, partially because I think they're both books that want to tell the story of a life, mm-hmm. um, sort of from beginning to end or to now. And I really felt that in Kick the Latch, that it was, you know, of course, we can't know everything about Sonia and everything that's happened to her, but I really felt that I moved with her through her life. And I wonder if you are attracted to that as, you know, a reader as well. And as a storyteller, what, what is powerful to you about showing a life? Um, I mean, I think, yeah, that's definitely something that is interesting. You know, I don't know that I would necessarily you know, be trying to write multiple books um, that were like that. But it just so happened that, you know, this particular story that was given to me um, had that feeling to me, um, even though she moved around a lot in her conversations. But, I mean, it's a fascinating thing, right, to sort of see, uh, you know, I don't know, especially as someone who's like maybe kind of in the middle of her life, I, you know, to to think about like, where am I going to end up? You know, what's going to happen next? I think that there's just something that is essentially sort of enthralling about getting to see the whole arc of it and sort of, I don't know, maybe learn something. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Like the direction her life takes is not one anyone could have guessed, right? Like Mm -hmm. she makes choices in response to things that happen to her, which is very much how we live, even though we like to pretend we have full control mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of the time, right? Mm-hmm. It's very like relatable that that experience, I think, even yeah. though what she's actually living through is very different from what I'm actually living through. I felt like I could relate to that way of living, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You have mentioned your mother a couple of times in this interview. Um and I wonder, you know, you said she's an antiques dealer. Do you feel that part of your life as an artist has been inspired by her? You know, what role has she played in in your art? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, she hasn't always been an antiques dealer. Um, she and my dad started doing that maybe about 20, 25 years ago or so after he uh, quit playing poker, he had been a poker player before that. Um, and she had run several businesses of her own. She was a manager of a store when I was a kid. And, um, and then she sort of like opened her own store and then she opened her own business and she was a floral designer. And I, when I was a kid, I would, you know, sort of help her make the things that she was making to sell. And we would go to craft shows together. Um, my mom and I are very close, um, and she's always been just incredibly 
exciting and excited by, you know, like me making things and encourage, you know, has always encouraged me to, to make art. Um, and has, you know, was my earliest reader <laughs> of my <laughs> writing. Um, and yeah, she's a, is a huge influence. That's wonderful. Um, and I guess I wanted to, to ask you to come back to the, the preciseness of this book, you know, the preciseness of the prose, the short chapters, do you think you're drawn to that kind of writing and how, how do you aim for precision? Um, if that is indeed what you're aiming for? Um, I think it's just, you know, the simple thing that that's, that's what interests me to do. Like when I'm writing, you know, I'm trying to keep myself interested. And so I'm always just writing things in the tightest and most interesting way that I can to keep my own self interested in reading my work. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a quick question about, um, to change tack slightly, but about empathy, because so we're building the theme of this show around the idea of the lives of others, right? And like how writers approach writing about the lives of others. And a lot of the pull quotes on the jacket of this book describe it as a portrait. And I've seen other people kind of talking about it as an act of empathy. And I think it's an interesting one because writers that we talk to often have different responses to the idea of writing as empathy and reading as empathy. And I wondered how you personally relate to it. Hmm. I think that, I mean, I think like anything, if you're sort of setting out and saying, I am going to write an empathetic portrait of a woman, it might end up being sort of false, but I think that, um, I don't know. I think that maybe the empathy in this book, if, you know, or people are finding that there, I think that, or I guess I hope that that comes just from the fact that I, um, I do respect Sonia, you know, and I really liked listening to her and I feel like whatever I ended up writing, you know, the, the sort of viewpoint of me as the author writing about this person, I think that it, I don't know, I think that it hopefully just shows, it just sort of contains, you know, inherently that sort of basic respect. Yeah, I like that empathy through respect. I think you could apply that to so many different ways of writing about people in general, couldn't you? Mm. Yeah. Well, Catherine Scanlon, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you. So nice to talk to you. Okay, Carrie and Octavia back here to talk about this week's theme, which we're calling the lives of others. And basically what we mean by that is 
um, writing that engages with the lives of real other people. Um, so that can take a number of different forms, which we'll get into. But I wanted to start by asking Octavia, do you think that the lives and the words of real people make for good literature? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a really, really interesting way for a writer to sort of direct their imagination, I guess. You know, creativity needs boundaries in order to flourish, doesn't it? And taking a real person or an object or something from, from life as your starting point is a really great way of giving yourself some parameters from which to explore whatever you're going to explore. But I will say, I think maybe one of the pitfalls of it is that no matter how well or how innovatively written, you know, a book might be, if the real person it's based on is well known and I'm not very interested in them, then I'm not going to read it, you know? <laughs> and like you mentioned Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld earlier. And I, you know, I actually heard her do a, a reading, um, a little extract of it on a podcast the other day. And it was actually pretty funny. And, you know, she's a great writer. It's very well written. But honestly, and this is just a question of personal taste, but I honestly could not care less about getting inside the mind of Hillary Clinton. Whereas I could imagine if it was a totally fictional premise and someone was like, you know, this is a president's wife who was overlooked or blah, blah, blah. Maybe I would. Maybe I would be more likely to pick it up. Yeah, that's so interesting to me, though, because, you know, some of the best books are about things that I didn't think I was interested in that the writer then makes me interested in. But maybe it's an extra barrier if you're like, oh, I'm not interested in this person. Yeah, because the subject matter is totally different. Like I often also read books that I wouldn't think are about things I wouldn't think would captivate me. But when it's a person, especially someone who has had so much exposure as somebody like Hillary Clinton and who is such a symbol of a particular thing, I'm just like, nah, (laughs) there's so (laughs) many other books uh, that are telling so many different stories. And that's not a story that I... um, I think needs my time, you know, in a way. But also, as you well know, I think that the boundaries between the real and the fictional are way, way less rigid than the market likes to assert at any rate, and and people as well. Um, And um, I actually, I went to see Rachel Cusk um, in interview with Merve Emray a few weeks ago, and she basically said, and I, for the record, I'm paraphrasing wildly and simplifying (laughs) wildly, so don't quote me on this, but she essentially was saying, there's kind of no such thing as fiction. And she was getting a bit into this troubling idea of autofiction and everything. But so many novelists research their books by interviewing people and then fictionalizing what they learn, or they translate their own lived experiences and feelings into fictional scenarios. Like there's more of the self in the book than people like to think, I think. But also that can be used to be very dismissive of the art at play when a writer writes. So it's a, it's a troubling boundary, essentially. But I think that literature is always about the lives and words of real people, just in in a more direct way than others sometimes. Is that a good place to leave this no, answer? No, you're right. You're, you've just exploded our whole theme, but it's fine. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think? What do you think? Um, well, I I agree with you on that. I think, you know, what the, as kind of as I was saying, one of the delights of literature is that it can show us an inner world in a way almost no other medium can. And in a way that a public or a historical figure, you know, we're never going to have access to their consciousness unless we imagine it. And that great act of imagination of a real life is is thrilling to me when it's done well. And so I really love when writers do that. 
Hilary Mantel does it, of course, famously in Wolf Hall, um, or even something like The Hours by Michael Cunningham, which is a, a portrait of Virginia Woolf and sort of takes her project of of depicting consciousness and turns it back on her. It's really exciting. So I do love it. And I I think I would be interested in any public figure if the writer had something interesting to say about their inner life, basically. But yeah, I was I was also thinking about this question in terms of voice, um, because of course, you know, so much of Catherine Scanlon's book is about voice and depicting a voice on the page. And I think the words of real people can be a really rich text here. Of course, um, Rachel Cusk is a great example of that. Mm. Um, but I think, but I think it adds it adds a really exciting extra layer to the reading experience. And I think this is true of the kind of books that I was talking before, where it's very stimulating for me as a reader when I'm kind of in a hinterland between the real and the fictional. And so I'm thinking of of Kick the Latch, for instance, or like Sheila Hetty's How Should a Person Be? Um, and other books of autofiction based in part upon conversations that the author has had with other people and sort of experiencing those and and feeling what is alive in them. Mm, I know what you mean. I love that feeling what's alive in them. That's a really wonderful way to put it. So speaking of things taken from life. It's it's kind of become a cliche, as you say, that, that writers steal from life. And as you say, every book is stolen from life, if you will, um, and that writers are writing what they know. But do you think that writers have an ethical responsibility when they're writing about a real person, especially someone who is alive? Yeah, I think I, think I have two answers to this. And the first one is from my gut, which is, yes, <laughs> you have an ethical <laughs> responsibility. And the second one is from my brain, which is maybe not, maybe that's too simple. Um, I think, you know, my first answer is probably driven by that awful feeling that most human beings have had where you've had words put in your mouth that you don't feel represent you. And I can imagine it would be extremely weird to feel that your own life experiences have been mined and manipulated by someone else, right? In the worst case possible scenario. However, if a writer has the stomach to write about someone who's alive, then of course they should be able to. It's art. They are free to do so. So I guess, you know, a bit like we were talking with Catherine uh, about, you know, motive is important. Respect. Is there a mutual respect between author and subject? Um, and, and the example that really came to mind actually was Joyce Carol Oates's novel Blonde, which I never managed to finish. Um, I really didn't like it very much. And it's been in the press again recently because the movie Blonde was based on the novel. But I think Marilyn Monroe is a really interesting example here because she's a, a human being. She was alive. She was real. She also was immediately a cipher, immediately a persona. You could argue that Norma Jean created the persona for herself and then everybody ran with it and continues to do so. So in a way, writing fiction about her feels pretty fair game because she's a character already. But it's so easy to forget that there was a real person under there. And at some point, surely she should be left to rest. And I think that, you know, Oates's novel is trying deliberately to play with the prurience of this whole exercise, but it just totally, in my view, replicates it. It mm. felt very prurient. It felt very exploitative and it felt grubby in the same way so much press that was published about her in her lifetime and after her death. So, you know, I think it's a really complicated question to which there's no simple answer. And I would say it, in my view, it's a kind of case by case basis and you have to go and you gut your gut a little bit. What do you think? 
Yeah, my my gut says you do have to be ethical equally. And I think then my head is like, but no, nothing in art should be off limits. Right, exactly. <laughs> I know. Um, and maybe it's that nothing is off limits, but then we're allowed to critique and discard art that feels disingenuous. Mm, that's a great sense. way of thinking of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I do think there's a real difference between historical figures and people who are alive and also public figures and like everyday people. If Kick the Latch was, you know, Sonia was like suing Catherine Scanlon because she didn't want the work to be out there in the world, I'd feel very differently about it, you know? Right, exactly. And I think if you're a person who is not in the public eye, who is then recognizably used for art, I do think there's a bit of responsibility there. I really do. I want to know if Hillary Clinton has read Rodham. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. That's much more interesting to me than the book. (laughs) (laughs) I think I wouldn't if I were her, but I don't know what Hillary Clinton is like. I I couldn't bear to read a novel based on me and my life and somebody trying to imagine... Maybe I would. (laughs) I loved experiencing that change of heart in real time. (laughs) Yeah, if somebody wrote a book about me, uh, I don't think I would be strong enough not to read it. I'd be too curious to know. And I think it would be a terrible thing. It's like that, that, that thing when you're a kid and everyone's like, would you rather be invisible or know everybody, everybody's thoughts. And I would always be like, I do not want to know everybody's thoughts. I think that would be awful. (laughs) It would be, yeah. I don't know. I think you probably shouldn't read it, but I think you probably would, right? I don't know. I. It's so hard to know. Also, nobody is going to write a book about us, so I don't think. We I mean, I might write a book about you. What would I call That's it? Carrie's World. <laughs> well, but you know, and then it gets into gray areas, right? This is like the eternal question about writers. You know, if you write a thinly disguised novel about your family experience, what? what ethical responsibility do you have to the other people in your life? And I think a lot of writers would say none. Um, And in principle, I I agree with that in terms of like respect and courtesy. It's a little, it's a little woolier. I think it depends what you've got the stomach for. Yeah. So let's return to, to novels about real people, because I think there's really been a recent trend of novels about, or even narrated by real historical figures. Um, and I was I was wondering, like, do you do you like reading them? And do you have a sense of what they need to do to be successful? I guess it's a bit like I said before, you know, it can be a turn on or a turn off, right? Like, for example, I really love a lot of Hilary Mantel's writing, but I've never been drawn to Wolf Hall. And I think actually thinking about it now, as anyone who listened to our show with Shola von Reinhold a few years ago about their novel Load will know this is basically a classic utopian versus Arcadian mm. split, isn't it? Like, I think about yeah, it all the time, baby. So do I. It's such a fabulous <laughs> concept. So if you did, if you haven't heard that episode, everyone, um, the Arcadian is the draw towards kind of historical um, facts and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Archival sort of Uh, way of looking at the world. And the utopian is more about the unknown future. And it's a really interesting way to think about what you're drawn to. And I think I am more intrinsically drawn to utopian stories. So stories that are new to me. And when it comes to writing from real characters or real figures, I think I'm more drawn to books like Catherine's where 
the voice of the real person is a way into this whole world I wouldn't otherwise know about, like horse racing. And because the real person in question is totally unknown to me, it means I don't have any prejudice for or against that uh, narrative voice, the narratorial voice. And I can just experience the story like any other novel, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm Arcadian, as we know. Um, to the hilt. <laughs> <laughs> and I do like, I, I love historical fiction and I do like reading books like this to an extent. We mentioned Hilary Mantel. I, I really love her writing. Um, and I think, you know, what's so exciting is the way that fiction can fill in the gaps of history. You know, I, I'm thinking of also A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James, which is about Bob Marley, or um, Burial Rights by Hannah Kent, which is about the last woman to be publicly executed in Iceland. Um, and so I think those are, are great examples of the form. Um, but let's talk about nonfiction. So how do you feel about portraits within nonfiction? So I'm thinking of biography or a political reportage about a particular person. And do you think that this kind of portrait is a useful way into a subject? And what do you think it has to do well? I really, really do. And I'm going to mention a book that I bang on about a lot, but Patrick Radenkeefe's Empire of Pain, I think does this masterfully because it is about some dead people and some living people. It's about the um, the Sackler family and their, you know, across several generations, but it uses this very universal hook of the multi-generational family saga to get incredibly deep into the much more niche subject matter of the really down and dirty specifics of the origin of America's opioid crisis and the various political machinations that have worked to make it worse and worse over time. And I just think it's so phenomenal because it's it's a real page turner. It almost reads like a novel. It's a work of narrative nonfiction. Um, and yet you are learning about corruption. You are learning about structural skullduggery, basically. You are learning about the art world and the corruption at the heart of that. You're learning about mixture of medicine and commerce. And it's really, it's a hugely political book. And it's also a, a book that is about history and very much about living history. Yeah. I read that over Christmas. Oh my God. My, um, new, reading resolutions, as you may remember. And I it's, do. it's brilliant. You're so right. And it is uh, so fascinating. It's such a good story. And it's so based on these portraits of these really bankrupt people. I think you're so right about that. And I think that people can be a really great way into narrative nonfiction. Right. Um, and, totally. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about the warmth of other sons by Isabel Wilkerson, Ooh. which tells the story of the great migration in America when many, many, many African-American people move from the South to the West of America. But the way she tells it is through portraits of individual people. And that just makes it come alive in a completely different way. It's it's often the nonfiction that I'm attracted to reading because it gives a human face to politics and history and um, these kind of huge things that sometimes need a human life to, to make sense of them. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And as I get older, I do get more interested in biographies, especially of artists. Um, that's so just something that happens in the mid thirties, yeah. isn't it? It's like, <laughs> suddenly I never wanted to read them before and now they creep in. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, let's talk about our recommendations, um, on the theme, the lives of others. What's, what's your favorite book about 
the lives of others? I actually found this quite hard to narrow down, um, but I managed it. So mine is Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders, which is a very experimental take on this theme, I'm going to say straight off the bat, but it's ostensibly (laughs) about the death of Willie Lincoln, who was Abraham Lincoln's 11-year-old son, who died very sadly from typhoid fever while his father was president. Um, But it is a fantastical and hugely imaginative, and I have to say profoundly moving book told in the voices of multiple spirits who are caught in the bardo in this state between life and death. And it takes as its grain of history, the recorded fact that we know happened, that Abraham Lincoln was known to have spent at least two nights sitting in the family crypt with his son's body mourning. And it, it takes this and then it flies off into this phenomenally imaginative setting. Um, and it's very, very philosophical and it really pushes at the limits of what this kind of storytelling can do. And I just, I really, I, yeah, I think it's a phenomenal book. It's one of those ones, as soon as I finished reading it, I was like, I am going to read this again in a few years mm. and I'm already looking forward to it. I admired, but did not love it. I will Interesting. admit. And I love George Saunders. It was a little bit too flying off the handle for me, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm always out there, off the handle. <laughs> <laughs> What's yours? Mine is Ragtime by E.L. Doctorow. Um, I read this novel years ago, but I still think about it a lot. It was written in 1975. It's a dizzying, dazzling story about the early years of the 20th century in New York. Um, and one of the things that's so exciting about it is that it features these very irreverent cameos from historical figures along with the fictional family that the narrative kind of follows. So so we meet like Harry Houdini and Henry Ford and J.P. Morgan, and we kind of see what they're thinking and the conversations they're having. And I think it it shows the way that this kind of representation of the lives of others can be fun, Mm. um, which maybe we didn't talk about quite as much um, in our discussion. But it's... Yeah, it's it's a playful and fun novel while being utterly serious about showing history. And I, I really loved reading it. Mm, that sounds fantastic. All right. This is Carrie Plitt back with Octavia Bright and Catherine Scanlon, our author guests, to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start with yours? I would love to. Um, Mine is Avalon by Nell Zink, which is another book with a really um, distinctive narrative voice um, set in Southern California, narrated by a character called Bran, who I guess in kind of classic Zink style is a total original, or at least to me, um, maybe as a non-American reader, I find her writing even more kind of energizing because she's maybe using tropes that aren't so familiar to me. But here in this story, Bran's mother at the beginning runs off to be a Buddhist nun. And so she grows up on her common law stepfather's plant nursery in rural California. And it's also a cover-up operation for his biker gang. (laughs) And the story unfolds from there with this quite unlikely communion of bikers and gardeners. And um, you could, I guess, call it a coming of age novel. And in a way, as Bran grows up and and she's kind of quite naive in certain ways, and then she meets these more urbane characters and it changes her worldview a bit. And of course, she meets a guy who she has a massive crush on. And this sort of central love or desire plot, I guess, really actually reminded me of Elif Batchiman's writing. It's this kind of forensic 
uh, exploration mm. of that very specific agony <laughs> of when naivety meets desire and when your desire is greater than your knowledge of yourself and of the world um, and the vulnerabilities that come along with that. So yeah, it's great. It's very funny as well. I think what I always respond very well to in Nell Zink's writing is that she has this real skill for combining a quite an intellectual perspective with really sharp humor. And then she has this phenomenal power of description, which I don't know, Carrie, I know you have like limited, uh, like <laughs> temper for descriptive writing, I but I find her descriptions completely like fabulous. Yeah. Your recommendations of Nelsink always make me want to read Nelsink. And yet you don't. Ne- I never do. <laughs> what's Catherine, what's your recommendation? Um, I wanted to recommend the book Gustin in Time by Ross Feld. Um, this is a book that originally came out, I think, around 2001, um, but it was reissued last year by NYRB Classics. Um, and it's a book about um, the sort of friendship and correspondence that happened between the author, Rosfeld and Philip Gustin um, in the last five years of Gustin's life. Um, so Philip Gustin, um, I don't know if either of you know much about him, but he no. um, he's a really just excellent uh, American painter. And he was sort of at the height of his um, acclaim uh, or fame in like the sixties. And he, and it was sort of because he had been painting in this abstract expressionist mode. He was, uh, he did figurative work when he was younger and then he sort of moved into, um, abstraction and then was in all these important shows, but he sort of was disgusted with his painting and decided to move back towards figuration. And he started making these just wild figurative works and he had a show of them in 1970 and and was sort of uh he like lost friendships over it with other artists and um critics were just sort of baffled by it they didn't really know you know like what is he doing it's sort of cartoony you know people just it's people couldn't handle it um and so he kind of was in this isolation um and this this writer Rosfeld who apparently has written um, other novels which I haven't read but he reviewed a 1975 show of this work and Gustin wrote him a note um, after he read it and just you know telling him how much he appreciated the review and so that was the beginning of this friendship between these two men and so the book um it's a small book but it's just really elegantly structured I think where it it sort of toggles back and forth between um, actual letters that Gustin wrote, which are just wild and and sort of funny and kind of profound too, um, and and then Feld's uh, writing about their friendship and about Gustin, and and it's sort of like part art criticism and part biography, and then just you know kind of like a portrait of a friend. But I really enjoyed it. That sounds fascinating. It does. It sounds fascinating. I can see why you would like it. And I can also, and and it's also a perfect recommendation for our theater. Yeah. So you really nailed it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, my recommendation is the novella Foster 
by the Irish writer Clara Keegan. And you may have heard of Keegan's other novella, Small Things Like These, which was shortlisted for the Booker last year, um, which I also really enjoyed. So Foster is, it's narrated by a young girl who is sent to be fostered by her distant relatives um, on on a farm on the other side of the country who she's never met before, while her family with a lot of children is, is kind of can't manage all of them. And, um, she's, she's sent off and it's very short. The relatives are this older couple. The house is strange, but they're kind to her. And that's basically the story, but (laughs) I don't know. There's, she's so good at telling a deceptively simple story that has so much emotion beneath it and so much life and so much kind of wisdom without being sentimental. And I cried and cried at the end and it felt really earned. And I just marveled at her craft as I was reading it. She's also very, very good on the voice of a child, which I think is hard to do. Um, and, And she gets that balance of the kind of observational acuity that kids have, but also the the kind of naive naivete with which they look at the world. So I'd really recommend it. I mean, I think I read it on a train ride. Uh, it, it takes no time at all. It feels like a long, short story in many ways. I've been wanting to read ever since you recommended small things like these. I've been wanting to read her. So yeah, dialing it up already. Yeah, Foster, <laughs> check it out. <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Catherine Scanlon and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at LipFriction. You can also get in touch with us on email lipfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes an enormous difference and it helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction.